Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, an educator out of St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm bringing you a podcast that is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We're going to dig deep into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources and supporters of those educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. So this is the inaugural episode of the Primary Source Podcast, and I wanted to make it a short one just to answer two questions. What is this podcast, and what is a primary source? So I've given you a little bit of background about the podcast itself, but I thought I'd give you a little background about the inspiration of the podcast. I've been thinking about this since 2016, when I was a teacher in residence at the Library of Congress, and the idea of a podcast was getting tossed around, and I struggled with how to talk about what often are very visual items and encounters with those items that are often very active and very nuanced. I sat on that for years, and it wasn't until this past year, 2020, when I started to listen to the Portraits podcast from the Smithsonian, specifically the National Portrait Gallery, that I started to think maybe the same way they used to describe portraits could be used to describe visual element elements. And the more I dug into podcasts, great podcasts that are available for educators, the more I thought maybe some of this pedagogy could be described verbally as well in a podcast format. And so I spent the summer, while we were all home uh, quarantined, thinking about the podcast, setting it up, and setting up the structure. And here we are on the inaugural episode at the beginning of the 20. 2020-2021 school year. Really excited to be here with you. My day job is as a elementary school librarian at Captain Elementary in the Clayton School District. I also, as I mentioned before, am previously a teacher in residence at the Library of Congress. That was for the 2015-2016 school year. And I also sit on education advisory boards for the American Archive of Public Broadcasting and the National Portrait Gallery. And the reason I share all of that with you is just so you know how much I really enjoy and appreciate historical documents and the role that they play in student learning. I want to bring that forth in the podcast. I want to bring some amazing educators on here that are doing great things with primary sources. And I want to bring others who are supporting from some of these great institutions and maybe also some authors or illustrators who use those as they create wonderful secondary source books for students to read and enjoy as well. So lots of plans for the podcast. We're going to keep the episodes rather short and our short episode today is really grounded in this question of what is a primary source? It seems like such a simple question, but I've talked to hundreds of teachers and I've looked on the major institutions' websites and the answers are all over the place. So let's back up a little bit and ask the question, why is it important to have a good definition for a primary source? And I think the reason is twofold. Number one, if I have a great definition or a work, great working definition for what a primary source is, it's going to impact the primary sources that I end up bringing to my students when I'm curating, selecting those primary sources. That's the first important thing. The second thing is that definition is ultimately going to be passed along to our students that we work with. And our students are going to be using those working definitions that they develop 
in their selection of primary sources. When I've talked to educators about their use of primary sources and them running into sticky spots when their definition didn't quite match up with the source they wanted to use, typically what teachers do is they make justifications and they say, well, this is close. This is what I'm looking for. I know it when I see it, even if my working definition doesn't quite match up. Now, again, usually for our elementary and our middle school students, often we're making selections or we're giving students kind of pools of areas that they can search for their own primary sources in. But by the time many of our students get to high school, they're going to run into assignments sometime during those four years where teachers are going to be asking them to find their own primary sources, to go out into the world and find primary sources. And students are going to use their own working definitions that maybe they developed as early as elementary school to find those sources. And what happens anecdotally in the students that I've spoken with, when they run into sources that don't quite match up with their working definition, instead of justifying their use like so many teachers do, they simply abandon the source. They let it go. They don't even bring it in as a secondary source. And so I think there are students at the high school level who are regularly missing out on amazing sources that can really inform their learning because they have a poor or flawed working definition of what a primary source is. Let me give you some examples of some of the definitions that are out there with some of the major institutions. So this first definition is from the Library of Congress. And they say that a primary source is an original document and object documents and objects created at the time under study, that they differ from secondary source accounts or interpretations of events without firsthand experience. All right, so we've got a few things going on here that they were created at the time under study and that they're drawing a contrast with them being um, different from secondary sources using words like interpretations and phrases like without firsthand experience. A major university shares this definition, that a primary source is an immediate first-hand account from people who had a direct connection with it. Specifically, they mention newspaper reports and mention that witnessed events or quoted events in the articles would count as a primary source. And then this definition, which I found on the Smithsonian website, starts with listing a number of formats that they describe as primary sources. And then they say that primary sources are created by individuals as part of their daily life. And secondary sources are created by someone who did not witness the event. They give a contrasting definition for a second person or hearsay. And they describe that as newspaper accounts from interviews of observers drawings based on others' observations, and books on the topic. So even with just those three examples, we have a few things that really bubble up to the top, and we have some contradictions. One thing that bubbles up to the top is this idea of first-hand experience or someone who is at the events. The Library of Congress says someone with first-hand experience. The major university mentions someone who had a direct connection with the item or the event. And the Smithsonian specifically mentions a secondary source as created by someone who did not witness the event. And I want to take some issue with that in just a moment. But before I do that, I want to point out the contradiction. 
that the university definition specifically mentions newspaper reports as primary sources when they have witnessed events or quoted people who did. And the Smithsonian specifically contrasts that with having as second person or hearsay descriptions as newspaper accounts from interviews of observers. And so we've got these lines being drawn where we've got this gray area. Where does the primary source lie when the person who is writing it maybe wasn't there but is talking with people who were? And this kind of common agreement, I guess, across the board that it has to be someone who has a firsthand knowledge of the event. These definitions are well and good, but I think that for one really specific reason, they work really poorly for our students. And I want to go back to the story that I was just sharing about the students I've spoken with at the high school level who end up abandoning sources. The students that I've spoken with, the number one reason they abandon a source is because they can't tell if the person who created that source was actually at the event. It's unclear from the source itself. Of course, this wouldn't be something like a photograph, but might be something more like the newspaper article that's mentioned. Maybe even a diary entry or a letter. When they really look at it, and sometimes they have to dig deeply into it to come to this conclusion, it just is unclear whether the person was actually there. And again, what do students then normally do? Well, the students I've spoken with don't count it as a secondary source and deal with it that way. They instead just say, well, uh, I can't tell who created this or where the person was when they created it, and so I'm just going to let this go. And they abandon it. And it could be a rich, incredible source that they could use. When I have my working definition of a primary source, I've very deliberately abandoned this idea that the source itself has to obviously be a firsthand experience. So let me share with you my definition of a primary source. And it is, a primary source is an item or an object directly connected to the topic of study and connected to the time period. So we've got two determining factors here. It connects with whatever we are studying at the moment and it is also connected or created in that time period when the event is or the topic is that we're studying. Those are the only two objectives that need to be met. And if so, if those objectives are met, we're going to count that as a primary source. And we're going to deal with it accordingly in our analysis methods and how we incorporate it into our learning. It takes out this firsthand experience issue where people get lost and confused and it's too hard to determine. And there's one thing that just pushed me over the edge. And amazingly, it wasn't the student use. I kept thinking, well, maybe students can work around this. Maybe they can figure out a way to, to do this. But the thing that pushed me over the edge of leaving out the issue around firsthand experiences is when you look beyond the definitions, when you go to the websites of major institutions who deal with historical documents and items, and you look at their resources for teachers and how those resources are described and how they are suggested as being used in classrooms. That the items that these major institutions are putting forward and describing as primary sources, you can't always tell whether the person who created them has had some kind of firsthand connection or experience or uh, 
with the, with the topic under study. So they give us a topic under study. They say, here's primary sources, but their definition of a primary source doesn't necessarily match up with the actual sources that they're putting forward. And so I'm going to follow the lead of the suggestions that are wonderful out there from these institutions and not necessarily the definitions. And I'm going to leave out this idea of firsthand experience. I'm also going to leave out something that I was so guilty of and early on in my teaching, and that was describing certain types of sources as always primary and always secondary. We actually see that in the Smithsonian definition when they talk about specific formats. And when they talk about certain formats of items as being primary, then they're saying that those things are always primary sources. But that's not the case. They're only primary sources when we're studying that specific topic. So if we take it from a learning lens, if we take it from an educator's lens, we have to be studying that particular topic for that item to be considered a primary source. And lastly, one thing that doesn't necessarily show up in the definitions here, but one thing that I think we need to make sure we put to the forefront is this idea that primary sources are in some way elevated over secondary sources or that primary sources are always true in a sense. And this actually does show up in the definitions of some of these uh, major institutions. When we've got the Library of Congress saying that uh, secondary sources, uh, in the description of secondary sources, they use the term interpretations. And so they imply that there's a truthfulness or a uh, fact-based element that's going on with primary sources that isn't happening necessarily with secondary sources. The reason that I think that that's false is if you look at some of the most engaging primary sources, depending on the topic that you're studying, those sources are rich with perspective and even bias. And it is that perspective and bias of the person at the moment who was experiencing this event in some way and documenting it for whatever reason. It's that perspective, perspective and that bias that sometimes makes that particular item really engaging and worth digging into. And teasing out what is the perspective of the person who's creating this and why potentially is it that perspective. And so this idea that there's a factual element with a primary source that just doesn't exist with a secondary source, I find to be completely untrue. In fact, I think that the perspectives and the bias that are inherently in great primary sources are ones that are really worth digging into and make them worth the time to bring into our students' learning experiences. Now, you don't have to take my definition of a primary source. You don't have to suddenly adopt that a primary source is an item or object directly connected to the topic of study and the related time period. But what I would advise you to do is to revisit your working definition of a primary source. If you would have to write it down, if you would have to tell it from, to students, what would that be? And is there any part of your definition that kind of breaks down, that doesn't always work in the learning situations that you, your students are having or that you want your students to have? And if that is the case, then I invite you to revisit your definition. We sometimes think of definitions of words as static and unchanging. And I can tell you that my definition of a primary source has changed several times over the past few years. And it may continue to evolve as I learn more and work with primary sources with my students more and think more about 
how these particular sources work in student learning. And so don't be afraid to let that primary source definition change. All right, friends, that is the end of our short first inaugural episode of the Primary Source Podcast. I'm Tom Bober. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing. And I will see you soon where we're going to be talking about primary sources in virtual learning, as well as some new great sources that are out there. I'll see you soon.